hauling Just look at the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us. This week, we preview the virtual farm science review show with the Ohio State University's Nick Zachrich. We hear how Case IH is preparing for virtual farm shows. We cover fall harvest safety tips with the University of Wisconsin's Cheryl Scolas. Ray Bohack's The Hot Rod Farmer brings us another installment of Bushels and Scents. And we hear the music of Johnny and the Mongrels. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, like many fall farm shows across the country, Farm Science Review in London, Ohio is going virtual this fall. The free event will be held September 22nd through the 24th, and the place to find all the action is fsr.osu.edu. There'll be virtual field demonstrations, agronomy and conservation sessions, and other educational resources. Here to talk about it all is Nick Zachrich, the show's manager with the Ohio State University College of Food, Agricultural, and Environmental Sciences. Nick, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thanks, Brent. Uh, glad to be here, and thanks for the opportunity to share about what we have in store for everyone. Uh, actually, the, the site is available now to get that preview in. So that while there's live action that's going to happen on the 22nd, 23rd, 24th of September, you can go on now and look at the, the, the platform and get comfortable with it so that you can access that readily when you do want to get on for a live session or a presentation that's going to happen. There's a lot of things for exhibitors and from commercial exhibitors. And we should mention right off the bat that there will be nothing going on for the public to participate in at the Molly Karen Agricultural Center there in London, Ohio. So please don't show up expecting any live events. That's correct. So the site will be closed. There will be just a few educators on site doing some, some things live, but it's not something that can be viewed by the, by the public though. So, uh, Please stay home and watch on your computer or watch from your tablet, wherever you might be. You can watch from just about anywhere. So as long as you have internet access and a device that can connect to the internet, you can access it from wherever that is. So when did planning for a virtual show really begin and, and what kind of coordination has gone into this? Because I imagine it's quite an undertaking. Yeah, it's, it's quite a switch for us. You know, we're, we're built as a team and, you know, what we do is, as a, a live in-person event. And so to switch to digital was not, you know, very, very easy of a task. Uh, we made the switch in July uh, with, with help from that decision with the leadership and the college and university and, and among our staff of knowing what's possible. And we were prepared to have an in-person show up leading up to that date and uh, had a lot of things planned on how to do so safely. And, um, you know, just there's a lot of other aspects that you have to think about rather than just, you know, keeping people, you know, hand sanitizer in front of them and, and, and social distancing and all those things. There's, there's a lot of details there, but then also it's just the travel. So, you know, we have a lot of people from traveling from miles and miles away, hundreds of miles, you know, from all around the world. You know, while 80% of our attendance is coming from Ohio, that's 20%, which is, you know, thousands of people coming from all different parts of the world coming to our site. So um, it's not only just their, their safety of getting here, but then, uh, you know, all the, all the aspects of trying to uh, make sure they have a place to stay overnight and um, all those different travel uh, restrictions that are in place across the country and across the world. It's it's really hard to determine, you know, planning out for a show three or four months ahead of time, logistics of getting displays and equipment and everything else to the show. 
Um, it just wasn't fair to our exhibitors to, to go through that and, and not knowing if we would be able to have an in-person show even leading up to the date of the show. So going virtual was, was a difficult decision for us, but we know that right now that it's the right one knowing that you know this pandemic is still lingering around and it's, it's a much safer way to go about. Uh, we do have some exhibitors and of course our education side that we, we really have some things to share with people. So that's why we decided to go virtual and not just completely cancel the show. There's, there's a lot of things out there happening right now you know, there's things related to the pandemic, but we know that agriculture just doesn't sit still. There's there's a lot of things that happen. People still need to eat. They still need clothes. There's there's a lot of things in the world happening still in agriculture. Just um, it, there's there's things to still learn though. To to learn from the experiences that we're having now, everything is is linked together. We know, and you know, in the livestock industry, we've seen that especially, and that of course then affects the grain markets and everything else. So one big chain reaction, and we have a lot to share. So about how many exhibitors do you have on board for the virtual show? Yeah, we're usually in that 600, uh, you know, range, almost 700 exhibitors. And this year, you know, we'll, we'll still have in the hundreds, we'll still have about three to 400 exhibitors uh, sharing some information. And they, they all have different varying levels of interest on, on what they want to share with you. So, of course, there's some equipment companies that want to share with what's brand new out there. There's some technology, there's some services. There's all the things, you know, there'll be a little sprinkling of everything you're used to seeing on site through the virtual show. And it's all up to that exhibitor of what they want to, to, to share and participate. So a lot of them will be having some type of a scheduled event, uh, whether it's a pre-recorded video or a live video, um, and then some also just question and answer session. So a lot of times uh, what, what the exhibitors like to do is, is they'll have a pre-recorded video of showing exactly what it is that they want you to see, but then also have a question and answer session so that you can ask those questions that you normally wouldn't get to ask in, in, in person on site. So if you have those questions for company reps or uh, you know, just individual sales reps, you can still bring those questions and a lot of the exhibitors will still have people available to answer those questions for you. So like the in-person farm shows, you're still going to have information on small farms and gardening, livestock, safety, health, and wellness. And you've also got the component again this year for the youth and 4-H participants. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and, you know, of all years, this is probably the year that we have a strong focus on youth. We know that the, uh, a lot of high school students are either attending school virtually or uh, not able to go on field trips at all. So this will be an, a, a nice change of pace from the normal classroom routine that they're going to be getting into this fall, which is different than any other year. So we're, we're hoping that, that maybe this opportunity for teachers to use some resources that we have available to learn a little bit about different parts of agriculture and, and uh, give them a, a good experience. So through 4-H, and through a, a high school program that we put together, there's a lot of different details. We're also having a, a virtual career fair. So last year we did start doing an in-person career fair and decided we can still do this virtually for the folks that, that really want to participate. So we know there's people out there that want jobs and there's high school students that want to learn uh, about different careers. Uh, and then we also have the companies, the, the exhibitors, and then we're also uh, collaborating with the Ohio Agribusiness Association to conduct this career fair. Uh, there's companies out there that need good employees. Uh, you know, in agriculture, there's we have our ebbs and flows, but we also uh, have a strong need for, for good quality labor that's that's well-trained. Um, so this gives an opportunity for anybody that's looking for a job to, to check out some of these companies, but then also for, for students and youth to uh, figure out what kind of training or, or education they'll need to get in the careers that they're really most interested in. So as you sit back and take inventory of everything you put together here for this virtual farm show, uh, what might a virtual show allow you to offer that you couldn't offer in person? The, the, the one biggest thing, Brent, is the flexibility to attend whenever it's convenient for you. 
there's been years where we know that that uh, farmers are, are harvesting. They have some soybeans that are ready. We have had a dry summer here around our area and different parts of the the region have had really dry areas where we're going to have some some premature crop harvest going on. So not ideal situations, but the crop is ready to harvest. And so that sometimes is, is a deterrent for some folks to come to the show. And there's a lot of other reasons. That's just one, you know, that, that might prevent you from being able to attend the show in person. Well, now you can still get a preview and see what's going to happen and, and see what sessions that you might be interested in or exhibitors that you want to connect with during those three days. But there's also ways of connecting and, and getting contact information for some of those company reps, the educators that have the information for you, you can find that all the time now. So it's not just the three days, it's before the show, during the three days, and after the show. And this database will still be live going through the spring. So if you did see a session, you want to refer back to that. If you did see an exhibitor that you want to be able to make notes on in the My Show Planner and refer back to those notes in a few months, uh, maybe you're looking at some spring items that are uh, going to be for the planner and you don't want to think about it right now during harvest, you can make those notes in on those those exhibitors pages and refer back to those with your My Show Planner login. So what else do people need to know before they log on to check out the virtual farm show? Well, the number one thing they need to know is that it's free. There's no cost to, to join. So the login is more for security reasons than anything else so that we know that you're a real person coming into the to the show. So create a, a free My Show Planner. All you need to do is a, have a, an email address and then and tell us what your name is. Um, and then that's that's all that we need from you to be able to log in. So then you'll have a password to be able to log in. You'll be able to save different exhibitors if you want to favorite them on your list or favorite sessions that you want to be able to refer back to later on to. And these sessions will also be mostly recorded. So many of the sessions that are live during the three days will be recorded and posted later on. So some of the question and answer sessions, those would be the, the ideal ones. So if you have a question that you really have burning that you need answered from a company rep or an educator, those are the sessions that you want to make sure that you attend during those three days because those those ones may not be recorded uh, depending on what, what the, uh, the conversation is about. So um, the educational sessions and, and some even of the exhibitor videos that are, are going to be posted, those are still going to be available though. So a lot of the content is still going to be available all that time. Uh, so you have a lot of access. Again, the website is fsr.osu.edu, and that is the Farm Science Review 2020. And uh, we're disappointed to not be able to get there in person, but we certainly understand, and this is the way things are all over the country this year. So I hope you go and support uh, the Farm Science Review virtual show this year. And Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And we should add that we're going to be doing some live streams during the course of the show to kind of keep you up to date on what's going on and uh, uh, give you some pointers on making the most of the show. Nick, thanks so much for joining us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Yeah, thank you, Brent. And we look forward to seeing everybody in 2021 and come and join us here virtually in 2020 on September 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. Well, next up, one of the exhibitors who will play a part in Farm Science Review and other virtual fall farm shows is Case IH. The agricultural equipment manufacturer has been hard at work trying to create content that will resonate with consumers. And I wanted to welcome into the program Rebecca Ivey, the corporate events manager at Case IH, to talk about what the folks in red are doing to create a fall farm show buzz. Rebecca, Welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. 
Yes, thank you. So I know it's been a big disappointment not to be able to do these shows in person because Case IH always brings such a big presence to these farm shows. And I know your displays draw a lot of traffic. How do you go about conveying not only the enthusiasm that you get from an in-person farm show, but also do a thorough job of demonstrating the features of the equipment that you need to showcase and create an experience that's going to appeal to people who are used to getting up close and personal with the equipment? Yeah, so I mean, once the spring started and we saw those risks coming in that some of those in-person shows might not happen, we really started to explore what those alternative options were going to be and kind of how we could ensure we had both a platform and digital assets kind of available um, for our customers. So as soon as we knew some of those fall shows weren't happening, um, right away, I mean, we started acting on those and working on implementation and getting different multimedia content available so we could still support our customers with all of our product launches and our content come fall. As of now, about how many virtual shows will Case IH participate in this fall? Yeah, so approximately um, five. So the main shows that would have been our corporate fall shows, all of those have turned virtual. Um, And there's even been some new shows that have been added. So on top of the existing shows that we would have participated in, we are also creating our own Case IH virtual experience. Now, I know uh, without getting into specifics, you, you just got back from Boone, Iowa, where you did the uh, field demo for uh, the Farm Progress show. How did all that come together? Yeah, that went great. So we had quite a few different products in the field. Those all got demoed, and there will be some spots for demos that you guys can watch starting September 15th within that um, Farm Progress virtual experience. So when you guys got to work on putting together these virtual experiences, what did the logistics of it look like? Have there been any specific challenges because of distancing guidelines or uh, because of employees working from home remotely? Uh, How has that looked? Yeah, so since we're not able to offer those in-person experiences, really the main challenges have been adapting our content to create that digital experience. Uh, For example, when we're looking at in-person shows, we're creating kind of those short form sizzle videos about our new equipment. Now we kind of had to switch focus. We're doing some more in-depth, longer form walk around videos so that producers can really still experience that new Case IH equipment within our virtual platform. Um, Since most of our employees have been working remotely, um, luckily we do have our product specialists who are constantly with and around the Case IH equipment still. So that's been perfect for helping us create all that video content. But still bring the sizzle, huh? Exactly. (laughs) So have you found any advantages to putting together content for a virtual show over an in-person show? Is there a silver lining here? Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, whether it's virtual or in-person, I mean, these experiences are really an investment of time and resources. One of the best things about those farm shows is the camaraderie that you have with the team and our customers when we're on site. So finding, even though that we're going virtual, the passion that our employees and our team members have, they've really brought it. So we're still collaborating, working together to create something that's going to be great for all those producers out there. So they can still feel that dedication, that commitment, um, and that connection really to our brand. I think one of the silver linings is all the content that we've had to create um, for the digital platform. So this is really an opportunity for us to have additional content that we can continue to repurpose in different ways throughout the rest of the year. Um, I mean, of course, once it's safe, we are looking forward to really getting back in person with a lot of our customers um, and producers because getting them to kind of touch feel and really experience that equipment is always the best 
So is there being work done behind the scenes to plan uh, just in case that some of these uh, winter shows, the indoor shows also have to go virtual? Yeah, so we've been really working closely with all these shows to understand what their plans are, how we can work together to kind of provide a safe experience for show attendees. It's really up to companies like us to definitely continue to grow, adapt, and how we can use both in-person and virtual to continue to provide that experience for our customers. So you talked about earlier, uh, you know, being able to repurpose the content and put it in other spots. Uh, if folks want to check out some of this content for themselves outside of uh, the the actual virtual farm shows, where can they go and see some of it? So I think the best place is going to be in the Case IH virtual experience that we're creating for our customers. So customers will be able to access this at any point once we launch. So our goal is really to provide an immersive experience for the brand at any time of the season. So producers, you'll see what's new, see a lot of the videos, the equipment action. Um, and this experience is gonna launch the week of September 14th. So you'll be able to access that via, there'll be some posts on our social media directly from our Case IH website. And I mean, looking past all of the equipment, you'll be able to enter into some sweepstakes within this site and purchase Case IH merchandise and those coveted farm show toys that everyone normally looks for at those fall shows will be available in our virtual experience. Very cool. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people wondering, have any product rollouts been uh, put off or pushed back uh, as a result of this? Or, or are you guys moving forward with uh, things that, as they've been planned? No, we've been continuing to move forward. Um, I mean, within this industry, farming is still going to happen. So we're continuing to push forward and work with those producers and our dealers to get all that product out. Excellent. Well, again, uh, make sure you go check those guys out, caseih.com. Also get out to your Case IH dealer and uh, see some of this new product here. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Fast Line Fast Track. Yes, thank you. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, it's harvest season in many parts of the country. So as those combines, carts, trucks, and tractors begin to roll, we invited in Cheryl Scolas with the University of Wisconsin Center for Agricultural Safety and Health to share with us some harvest safety reminders that we hope you'll take to heart. Cheryl, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thanks, Brent. I'm glad to have this opportunity today. I'm excited that uh, we get to do that. Excited it's harvest season here. And before we get started, tell us a bit about the work being done by the UW Center for Agricultural Safety and Health. So the University of Wisconsin Center for Agricultural Safety and Health was started back in the 90s. But long before that, Wisconsin was one of the first states that had an extension specialist working in the area of farm safety. So this is an area that for about 76 years, um, extension has been a part of working in this. So we try to get the message out, do research, looking at new technologies, new issues that come up as our farm operations are changing. And this time of year, the harvest season is an important time for us to talk about those safety factors as it is a time of the year where we see more injuries and illnesses occurring to our farm population. When you've worked in the agricultural safety and health field for nearly 30 years, and you've given these kind of talks probably hundreds of times, and a lot of the people listening to them right now have probably heard them many times before, but I know they bear repeating because when you're in the throes of harvest and you've got the pressures of uh, the weather, diminishing daylight, and other factors. Sometimes farmers just bull rush into it and ignore some of those safety measures that might just save their lives. 
And you know, it's that message that comes up in, in your mind that might say, I shouldn't do this. Or I recently had a, a custom manure hauler who called and she's like, we've been to your training. We had this manure gas situation. This is what I knew to do. And, you know, now what do I do? So, you know, we address this for the next time we have to do pump out. And those are the days you go, yeah, somebody heard this message. And um, so those are the... Those are the good days. Unfortunately, um, I've seen a lot of the the times where the call has been something happened to somebody, and that's what we want to prevent. So before the equipment even hits the field, how important is it to have a plan in place that's going to be well known by everyone who will participate in harvest on your farm? You know, having that plan is really important. And I always say safety starts with organization. Because when we have those routines, we have those plans, people know what to do if something happens to someone, that that accident, that crash, you know, we can cut seconds off, you know, getting um, the emergency action plan started or preventing, you know, some other factor from going wrong. So taking the time to go through the plan, um, discussing what to do in case of an emergency, figuring out your communications process. I get really, really concerned about lone workers this time of year, especially on our family farms, our smaller operations. You know, somebody's out there working for the day by themselves. And, you know, what's that point of time that we start looking for them? Where do we start looking for them? So having a daily communication plan so we know to check in on somebody that we have an idea where you may be working. Um, that's what those plans can help with. And it, it helps get everybody together and being aware of what they need to do. So what are some of the often overlooked safety or maintenance uh, preparation items that should be addressed before you even begin harvest? You know, when we start, you know, begin harvest, pull out that operator's manual. Take a look through your operator's manual and see what it talks about for safety precautions. Because what might not be overlooked as much as we're used to working with it. Or we haven't worked with that piece of equipment in a year. And so we need to look at, you know, our safe operation of that piece of equipment. It's also one of those times where maintenance is really important because it's often when that machinery breaks down that, you know, we take that added risk or, you know, that PTO shield that we know has a crack in it and and isn't a big deal now, when we're under pressure and we get too close into that hazard zone of that PTO, that shield's broken, it catches us and we're entangled in a, in a PTO. So it's that time of year where, you know, your maintenance list, your safety operations, those are some of the things that you want to be looking at. The other thing I would say is this is a good time of year to check your fire extinguishers. Are they back in place? Are they full? Does everybody know how to use a fire extinguisher? Where are your first aid kits? And if you go to the store and you pick up a box ready-made first aid kit, take and put in a more heavy-duty scissors because, you know, a lot of our farm clothing isn't going to be cut with one of those little scissors in there. Um, and put them in places, you know, your truck that might be going to the field, your tractors, 
out in your building so that if something happens, it's not a far distance. The other thing that we often overlook is knowing where the main power shutoffs are. And we talk about this a lot when we do farm rescue trainings with fire departments is having it well marked and known, you know, where is our main power? Where do we turn off water? Where natural gas or propane if we're working with a grain drying situation? Once was doing a farm rescue on a dairy farm and they had turned the power off but hadn't thought about the backup generator. So the backup generator kicked in, the wall of fans turned on for ventilating the barn and it that drew the fire straight down the barn. So taking and you know identifying those, have somebody from the fire department come out, those are, are great steps to get us started. Once you get your maintenance done, you get ready to head out to the field, what do farmers need to consider to keep themselves and other motorists safe when traveling with harvest equipment on the roadways? So I usually break um, road travel discussions down into three parts. One is your pre-travel. Secondly is your operator readiness. And thirdly is actually being out on that road. And with the pre-travel, if you have employees or, you know, younger people working with you that are going to be your operators, I really recommend using a checklist that reminds them to not only check, you know, the fuel for the day, but the hitch connections, the lights are working, taking in dusting off your retroreflective markings, um, checking that your turn signals and hazard flashers are all working so that you know when you get out on that road that those lighting and marking um, are going to be, you know, making you as visible as possible. And every state is going to have different rules about roadway travel, the lighting and marking requirements. Wisconsin just updated those rules back in 2014, 2015. So we actually have a classification called wide IOH. I would recommend to our farmers here in Wisconsin that they treat everything as a wide IOH when it comes to lighting and marking. You know, if you've got a flat um, piece of marking tape, get the retroreflective stuff. If your if your SMV is faded, you know, go get a new one. Be sure that it has the red retroreflective parts to it. It basically doubles the distance that, you know, those markings are seen in a car's headlight. In the fall, we come to those low light days, um, early hours of darkness. So you really want to be visible. So check things out before you get into traveling and then be sure you have a trained operator in that vehicle and that that operator is ready to work for the day. And I say operator, not driver, because you are operating. You're being a heavy equipment operator, and all the rules of the road still apply to you. So the stopping at the stop sign, the using the turn signals, you want to be ready to go. And then the third part of that gets to be those roads. Know your roads, check your roads, you know, know where your danger parts are. Um, you're not going to know who's out there every day. And sometimes we get used to, oh, there's no vehicle here. But now today there is. And I'm not sure about your part of the country, but our part of the country, left-hand turns are really one of the big crash situations, as well as that time difference between the speeds of our farm equipment and those motor vehicles out there. 
So look for those spots where you know you're going to have to turn or you might be a slower traffic. Can you move at a different time of the day? So plan ahead, check things out. And when you get out there that day, you know, be the ready operator. Well, every year we seem to see stories about a combine coming in contact with power lines or the operator getting it stuck in some sort of precarious position. We climb into a machine that big and powerful. It's a, a big responsibility to be aware of your surroundings. And that means lines, limbs, and other equipment and people. Right. So taking the time to, to look at, you know, Go down the road. Be sure that those limbs, I could tell you a limb on a nearby road that I know a combine's going to hit it because it broke in a storm. Um, so check those things out. If you see there's a low power line, you know, be sure to talk to your power company ahead of time. Get that power line um, back up. If you have areas that, you know, you're concerned about, um, think take a stick of what your height of that combine is and just kind of go out and and check them to be sure you're going to be able to get that clearance big equipment and people around them the best thing is you know being sure that everybody is instructed to stay out of the way i also like to use what i refer to as the telephone company procedure before you get into it you walk around that piece of equipment looking underneath for kids bicycles dogs and then, you know, the all clear that you're starting up that equipment and ready to go. Well, then as you get out into the field, what are some of the specifics that folks should be looking for? You know, when you're, when you're out in that field, um, you know, just really being focused on that operation. Also, has there been any, extra, you know, heavy rain events through the, the year? Um, I had one farmer one time at a, a training and he that afternoon had um, hit a washout in the field and busted the axle on his combine. So kind of checking those areas for, you know, the ditches, um, some of that transport equipment that you're going to be bringing into the field, the trucks, the grain carts, you know, where are you going to position? How are you going to safely unload? Are you working on slopes that somebody needs to be aware of? So checking your field conditions. Um, some places are going to have mud this time of year, you know, and so what do you do if you get stuck in the mud or how can you prevent getting stuck in the mud? Um, those are issues. And one other things that we sometimes see is, you know, just don't have somebody riding in those wagons, you know, someplace where there isn't an actual seat. Well, and I know this should go without saying, but I know we saw some pictures uh, just here this week of uh, a fella out in uh, Washington State who was arrested for DUI in a combine and actually rolled it over. I'm sure, a lot of people probably saw that, but uh, uh, drinking and combining, not, not a good idea. No, drinking and combining, impaired driving, distracted driving, none of that is a good idea. You need to be that responsible operator. Well, speaking of common sense, you know, though the tendency is there to push through fatigue, why is it important to listen to your body when you feel like you're more than just a little bit tired? I know that the tendency is there to want to keep pushing and, uh, you know, you got to get it done. You got deadlines but it could be counterproductive and it could be very dangerous in the long run. You know, a lot of times it's that push of mother nature. You know, we know that there's a storm coming in, something's going to change. We want to get this last load in and, and that's where we get in trouble because, 
because we're tired. Um, we don't make the best decisions if we're under stress and we're tired. So taking care of yourself throughout the season is really important and reducing that stress. You know, just even while you might think, I don't have time to get out of this tractor cab, this combine cab, but taking those few minutes and taking a break, letting, you know, your back relax, refreshing yourself, it's going to help keep you going in the long term, as well as, you know, taking the breaks to, you know, grab that sandwich in a lunchbox out in the field. Um, we need to really be concerned about our health this year with the pandemic going on because, you know, we want to be sure that we're able to make it through this season. So, you know, keeping ourselves healthy um, is going to help us get that work done. And sometimes you just got to call it a day. I had one older farmer at a farm show one day say to me, he said, you know, the worst thing that happened in agriculture was when they put lights on tractors. Now you didn't have to stop and end your day. Um, but there's a lot of good to having lights on tractors. But we do have to know where our limits are and taking time for ourselves. So we talked a lot about operating in the field, but safety also needs to continue in grain handling and transfer and the storage process because that volume of grain can pose some very serious hazards, as we've seen, sadly, too many times. So, you know, my number one when I was thinking about this ahead of time was, you know, just the factor of stay out of flowing grain. If we're not in grain that's flowing, it, there's no reason we need to be in the bin. If we're dumping grain into that bin, we don't need to have people riding on top of, you know, load, load, loads of grain, um, whether it's in that cart or in a transport vehicle. This is really a time to keep the kids away or to keep others away and out of that flow of traffic with those vehicles you're coming in and out with and around those stores and those grayers. Check your augers. Be sure that you have the shields and guards on augers, power takeoffs. The electrical is all good. Last year, I remember noticing that there was a lot of um, dryer fires um, in our area, in other parts of the country. And I recently saw an article out of Canada saying when they looked at those, a lot of those were just related to, you know, not having them properly maintained before the season started. So taking time to do a good job of cleaning them out, getting all your facilities ready. And I'm going to go back to one of those early statements I made about knowing where your utility turnoffs are. We worked with the fire department one time, and that was the problem was nobody knew how to turn off that fuel source for that dryer. So um, that really is an important one. One that we sometimes don't think about is the dust that come with these grains and our health related to breathing in those dust. So, you know, in those dusty grain environments, having that N95 respirator, not the face coverings we're talking about for the pandemic, but actually wearing a respirator um, to help keep yourself healthy, really when you're cleaning out ahead of time too, because that old moldy grain, dusty grain, um, you know, we can have different reactions to those that can cause us different health issues. So Cheryl, uh, is there anything else that uh, we haven't asked that might bear mentioning here that folks should be thinking about before they head out to the fields? 
I have one thing that I would remind people not to do, and it's going to probably sound a little bit silly, but practice a three-point climb when you go to get on and off of your tractors and machinery. We see in the worker comp data, injury data, a lot of twisted knees, sprained ankles, broken, you know, bones because somebody jumped off. Mm. And so, you know, one easy thing we can do is prevent those by getting on and off our equipment, um, working safely if we're going to the heights of those grain bins, um, using that fall protection. So we don't think a lot of times about some of those little things, but they sure can add up when the injuries happen. Well, you can't get the job done if you're laid up. No, you can't. And that makes that plan um, even more important so others know what to do if you are laid up. Well, folks want to know more about the work being done by the University of Wisconsin Center for Agricultural Safety and Health. Where can they go? They can go to fyi.extension.wisc.edu backslash ag safety. For a lot of our individuals outside of Wisconsin, They, you know, check with your local extension services in your state. Um, Lots of good egg safety resources out across the country. Well, this is all very, very important stuff. And I hope that uh, people will take this to heart. And I hope that you'll share this around with other people so that that, that they can uh, have this little reminder. Again, I'm sure it's stuff you've probably heard before. Uh, but you need to hear it again and have it fresh in your gray matter as you get ready to head out into the field for this harvest season. So, Cheryl, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track Live. And we hope you come back uh, to share more information with us here in the future. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me, Brent. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, it's time to check in with the Hot Rod Farmer, Ray Bohax, for another installment of Bushels and Scents. You can find all of his great multimedia content at farmmachinerydigest.com. Welcome to Bushels and Scents, a weekly podcast from the Farm Machinery Digest. I am your host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. Other than changing the cabin air filter, you never have had the AC system on your tractor discharged, evacuated, and refilled with refrigerant. Now the system stops working because the refrigerant and moisture turned to acid and destroyed the compressor, accumulator, and other parts. The repair bill is $4,000 or the equivalent of 1,143 bushels of corn because you did not want to spend $200 to service the unit. Visit FarmMachineryDigest.com where steel and soil meet for more technical articles and engaging podcasts. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we're changing things up a bit this week. Joining us are Johnny Ryan and Jeff Bostick, founders of Johnny and the Mongrels, a New Orleans-infused swamp funk and Bayou Soul band with some real heavy-hitting ties to some big players in the music industry. Guys, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hey, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves here real quick? Here, uh, my name is Johnny Ryan. Bostic. You can introduce me. And that's Mr. Bobby Masano over there. The famous, infamous. Blues Hall of Fame <laughs> guitar player, Bobby Masano. Yeah, and we should uh, uh, note that Bobby, uh, uh, part of the group also, is recorded and toured with stars, Frankie and the Knockouts, Lou Graham, Steve Winwood, Clarence Clemens, and the great oh, Peter Chris, among others. Huh? Oh, you're dating me. <laughs> See, we're just trying to get there. <laughs> I love it. 
So tell me a bit about Johnny and the Mongrels for folks that aren't uh, aren't familiar. How'd you guys come together? Well, uh, Jeff and I met back in about 2015, and uh, I saw him playing with another band that he had created and really dug what he was doing and just approached him and, and asked if he'd want to maybe start a project together and uh, he was down for it. And so we just started uh, kind of talking to each other about influences and what we dug. And we both were very aligned in terms of what we, what we liked and the kind of things we wanted to create. And, and so it just kind of flourished from there very quickly and very easily. Um, and so we've been together since about 2015 uh, as Johnny the Mongrels. Yeah, it was instant. Like our a lot of our influences is, are the same. We like the same kind of thing. And the first time we tried to write a song, I think we wrote five in an hour. Like it was ridiculously fluid, and we just came together like it was meant to be. So. I just like playing with them. <laughs> <laughs> I saw him playing one time, and I just went, "Wow, I got to play with these guys." So that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Cool. And we're blessed. Who were some of those influences? As a bass player, mine go back to like Marcus Miller, Ohio players, like anyone that's ever played with Stevie Wonder. But the ones we share, I think there's there's several. Uh, yeah, JJ ahead. Gray, yep. Mofro, uh, yep. Mark Bussard. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, those guys, Tat Benoit. Yep. I mean, those are my big, big three for sure. Well, I tell you what, before uh, we go any further, the first thing we have to clear up is the fact that although your musical roots are firmly planted down in the Crescent City, you guys are actually based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Tell us a bit about what a dyed-in-the-wool band with a heart for New Orleans is doing out Rocky Mountain Way. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, man. Can I can I coin that? And that was great. <laughs> we'll, we'll get together on that later. All right, cool. Yeah, no, I mean, I grew up in Colorado. Just originally from Minnesota. Oh yeah, you betcha. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, spent some time in New Orleans as a kid, and, and uh, you know, got really immersed in the music and the culture down there. And it's always kind of ended up being in the back of my mind for a long time. But as I got older, I spent more and more time down there, and it just has its claws in me big time. And I think all of us. And, Absolutely. Just the uniqueness and the, the wonder of what is Louisiana and New Orleans in particular uh, in terms of music, um, it's hard to deny. And uh, so we wanted to kind of pay tribute to that a little bit with this record especially. What do you think it is that, that inspires so many artists about that vibe down there, just the uh, the sights and sounds and the feel uh, of everything that comes together just to to really inspire? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think I've said this many times in other interviews, but I think the one thing that strikes me every time I'm down there is just how open-armed everybody is down there and how they want to just, you know, include you in whatever's going on and make sure, are you all right? What you need? What can I do for you? You know, and they want to make sure you're part of whatever the experience is that's going on at the time. And they want you to come along on that journey. And man, that's infectious as, as, as all get out. And that's that's what I get. And for that. me, it was really neat because I had just done my record at the same studio that they did Creole Skies in. So, it, you know, I had been down there a lot for the last couple of years, too. So it was just really nice for me to jump into this, you know. And since you bring that up, uh, that studio uh, being the legendary Dockside Studio, Maurice, oh, Louisiana, yeah. there on the banks of the Vermilion Bayou, 
just turned out a number of Grammy winning albums and just kind of give folks a, a, a taste of who's recorded there. I'll rattle off a few names. B.B. King, Keb Moe, Leon Russell, Taj Mahal, Mavis Staples, Mark Knopfler, and Derek Trucks, all laid tracks there. And then on the countryside, Radney Foster, the Randy Rogers Band, and Sammy Kershaw, as well as Americana artist Parker Millsap have all cut there and uh, just an amazing place. What was that vibe like uh, recording an album there? Oh man, you, I mean, it's, it's so, it's almost indescribable. You, you drive up the main drive and it's like you've gone back in time and you're on a Southern plantation, you know, and you stay there the whole time you're recording your record. They have living quarters there. There's, you know, there's a pool, there's a swimming pool, there's a kitchen, like, but in the studio was in slave quarters. Yeah, yeah, the old slave quarters, exactly. You walk in, and I, I, I didn't even know what to do when I first walked into the place. It was incredible. So, Sammy Kershaw was my neighbor when I lived in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, it's got, it's just got a crazy feel to it. There's spirits in the wall there. That all the the panels in the studio are old doors uh, from New Orleans that they they just they. I guess acquired and just built and there's just stories upon stories the the muddy water the bayou is going right by the studio there you can sit on the deck and just get inspired so easily there's you have i mean you just have to go there to, to even halfway understand what i'm even talking about i guess but just like going to the grand canyon i guess you, you don't know until you've been there well, one of the songs on the record was inspired there. Before we were actually recording it, Johnny brought me down and went down to visit it. And the whole feeling of the entire place, they have a beautiful Baldwin piano. Um, I walked in, I sat down on it while Johnny was doing something with uh, our producer and the song, or the, the engineer, and instantly started writing a song. And tears are falling on the piano, and we finished it later together. and. It's called Shallow Grave. I think we're actually doing it tonight. Yeah, so that was written at Dockside based on inspiration from the place itself. Well, before we go any further, let's hear one from the boys. This is Shallow Grave on Fast Line Fast Track.
Great stuff from deep down in the bayou. Yeah. Oh, thanks, brother. <laughs> uh, I like it. And you talk about uh, pianos on or the uh, teardrops on the piano keys. I might have to steal that one from you. That sounds like a song in the making as oh, well. There you go. Run with it, brother. So there we go. Well, we could all get together on that one. I like that. So there's a lot of star power behind the effort to make Creole Skies, which just came out July 17th. Uh, it was co-produced by Joe Baby and Scott Sherrard, who was formerly the lead guitar player and band leader for the Greg Allman Band. What was it like working with those guys? Well, yeah, we're spoiled rotten, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Joe Baby was somebody who approached us um, a year and a half ago, saw us playing the show, and just came up and said, hey, when you guys are ready to do your next record, I want to produce it. And, you know, that, we didn't know him at the time. And, and uh, so that was, uh, at first, like, eh, yeah, whatever, who are, whoever you are. But then he, we, we got some information and knew who, you know, figured out who he was. And gosh, we were really excited and, and humbled and honored to get the chance to work with him. And then, and then Joe Baby brought in Scott. Um, and Jeff and I went to New York City where, uh, Scott lives in Harlem and did some writing sessions with him to kind of flesh some stuff out before we went to Dockside to record the studio in the studio and and uh, just yeah it was incredible to work with somebody who's had the experiences he's had and the insight that he's got it was it was a, a really good relationship not only in New York but when when he came to Dockside and played you know, guitar on the record with us and also co-produced with Joe. Well, I also want to uh, uh, highlight some of the other folks who were on that album, uh, including Scott, you know, keyboardist uh, Bill McKay, drummer Eddie Christmas, and Erica Brown on background vocals. And then you brought in uh, guest musicians Roddy Romero and Charlie Wooten, as well as Lee Alanzino. So uh, a powerful lineup there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was incredible. And a lot of those guys showed up on my birthday. We, we recorded the record on my birthday. And uh, I came out of the, the vocal booth and the, all these all these legends are sitting on the couch in the, in the control room, you know? And hey, hi, hi Lee, hi Charlie. You know, it was really crazy and neat to, to have that experience on my actual birthday. We had Chantilly cake together. And it was really cool. So we were very honored and and again, hubble, I keep using that word, but um, this is all something that, that we had some incredible help with Joe Baby 
uh, setting us up with a lot of that stuff. And, and yeah, we're we're very honored and excited to have those guys part of the record, especially being recording it down at Dockside. We wanted to have Louisiana players on that record because the whole idea of the record was to honor that area. So, so what's that whole process look like when you get in the studio? I mean, as, as far as how long it takes, what the days look like, what, what the uh, kind of run of the days look like? Well, you know what was really cool about this record is I've had I've had some studio experience with different projects. I played, uh, I've done recording um, at the House of Blues studio in Nashville with my sister Jen Bostic and different studios. Anyway, what made this one really special is that Joe and Scott had in mind that they wanted it to feel real and true and like not overproduced, not over mixed or mastered. So what's cool is it went actually fairly quickly. I mean, we would. I think we did one or two takes of every song, no more by anyone other than maybe a guitar solo here and there or whatever, but it was meant to be very organic and and feel real. And so it was a really cool experience for me because I've been in both situations, both like tracking 87 tracks or making it, you know, one track. And this was on that side, but kind of right in the middle. And it was, it was perfect. Well, before we go on, let's hear one more from Johnny and the Mongrels. This is Music Man on Fastline Fast Track. Music going on, then you can do 
what have you guys been doing to keep busy since you haven't been able to be out on the road supporting this album? Well, you know, we've actually had a few opportunities to do. I mean, there's we just did a little interview on one, but there's a lot of streaming platforms out there. And I think it's great that people are doing that. And, you know, everyone's adapting to the situation and doing the best they can. And so we've done a few streaming shows, which is great because not only do we get to share our art, but people get to still hear music. And I think that's important because what is life without music? Um, and then we have got to play a couple of shows, but uh, I guess before that, when I first, like everything shut down, like just writing, a lot of writing and uh, communicating and spending time with each other within the Mongrels family. Um, and I guess that's that's most of it. Yeah, and Bobby's been doing some really cool stuff, writing a whole, or rewriting or doing some new covers and things like that, but in his yeah, own this, way. This is about you guys. Oh, but it's cool. Family, bro. We got time to talk about it, man. What uh, what do you got going on with the covers? Well, you know, I, I've never done, I've got nine albums out, you know, and I had a number one about five years ago on Billboard. And, <clears throat> and I never did cover tunes because I went, you know, when I was a kid, I basically went from, being well, actually from working in the post office, which we have to keep the post office working, to to like touring. So I went from that. I mean, from the post office to like arenas, you know. And uh, but I never did cover tunes. I was never in a cover band. But I have all these songs that I I've loved my whole life. So I'm doing this little project with you know I'm sending it out to famous friends. You know, playing keyboards and stuff. But it's all cover tunes that I never sang, and it's it's called the songs I never sang. So it's, love it. it's really fun. What are some of them that you're working on? Um, you know, I, I did uh, I did my father's eyes by Clapton because I, I wrote for Clapton a couple times and <clears throat> it, it, that song in particular, the day my father died, I was living in Florida and I was driving to New Jersey and I heard it on the way to the airport and I just broke down. So it means a lot to me. And, you know, things like obscure songs, like a Nature's Way by Spirit and. Uh, uh, I did helplessly hoping, and, and uh, uh, just just songs that I've always liked that I never got to do. So it's really been fun. You know, I never got to do cover tunes, so this is my cover album. <laughs> so you've gotten a chance to play with so many great players. What, where do uh, Johnny and the Mongrels fall among all these guys? Because it seems like you you guys have assembled a lot of talent here. Well, I mean. You know, look, I've been doing this for my entire life. I mean, this is my 44th year in the business. And um, I played for like 6 million people on like 70 albums. But there's something about these two guys that was so genuine. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't happen a lot where you, you know, musicians, you know, they're always, you know, you go through each other's lives all the time. It's like you're saying hi and you're playing with them for a while and they disappear. But these guys are just... First off, they literally are brothers from different mothers. And, you know, and, and, and they're really genuine. You know, I mean, Jeff's one of the best bass players I've ever seen. Oh, stop. Well, no, it's true. He's, <laughs> he's very insecure about it. But he's, I mean, look, I played with some ridiculous bass players. Jeff is phenomenal. And Johnny literally has one of the best voices that I've, and I've sung with some amazing people. I mean, I've had, you know, I was with the ground from Florida and, Joe and Turner from Rainbow and Winwood and you know and Johnny's got a voice <coughs> that is always on the money and he 
sings from from the heart as opposed to singing, you know, to make a dollar. And it's really cool. I mean, for me, every show I do with these guys, even this with you, you know, it's just really a joy. And and that doesn't happen a lot in your life. So I love these guys, you know. Well, I love it. He says it's a joy, and we're we're still only halfway in, so that's good. Let's let's keep it that way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, where are you guys seeing the greatest traction when it comes to gaining exposure? Uh, you know, for for folks who aren't familiar, is it an active terrestrial radio market for for blues and soul bands, or are you guys turn to the internet or social media, or or, or where where are you really digging to develop a following? Well, I, it's we really had to diversify a lot and be way more creative and think outside the box more than maybe we used to have to do. Um, and we're very, very fortunate to have an incredible team behind us with, like you said, like with Martha, Martha Moore, incredible PR lady from Nashville. We love you, Martha. I call her the timeline Nazi. <laughs> she keeps us in line, man. She does. She makes sure we don't miss anything. Jeff, Jeff check your email. Gosh, <laughs> but she's incredible. She's helped us so much. And, and uh, we, uh, you know, I think we've had a really good connection with a, a gentleman named T.C. Davis, who's helped us with the radio aspect of things. And he's kept us high on the charts uh, with DJs and in terms of downloads for, for getting our stuff played on radio. Um, so ironically enough, because we can't do this live, radio has become, you know, more important than it used to be lately, you know, and, and uh, we've taken advantage of that. And I'm pretty blessed to have, you know, those those people behind us. Uh, yeah, do you feel like there is a little bit of added pressure right now since there is such a captive audience to kind of strike while the iron's hot and uh, and kind of build that following before you can get to get back out on the road a little more? Yeah, I think it could go both ways, but I definitely think it's a time to, yes, capitalize on the fact that people are, are online more and looking – to online for music and that's great and um we just hope that uh we can keep that momentum and you know some people are saying it'll be next year we can be out touring some people are saying two years and so but it, it is it has been great to be able to have this outlet in these times and have people react to it and be there and and it, it shows that they're enjoying it too and you know that's a huge part of it just like playing a live show like part of it is getting the energy back from your fans. So when they're commenting and everything and you know they're there, it's it's great. So well before we go any further, I want to share with our listeners your song Louisiana Girl. If you wouldn't mind, share with us the story behind this one. Yeah, absolutely. Um this song um this this song started with just a riff that that Boston Jeff was just playing one day. He was just we were just goofing around in rehearsal one day and he just started playing a riff. And I have this giant notebook of lyrics because <laughs> I'm always writing. I have notebooks all over the house, you know, in, in, in case something inspires me. And he's playing the riff and I just kept flipping through and I found the lyrics that just the meter and the, just everything seemed to fit. And the song came together in like five, ten minutes. You know, it was really amazing. And it's just uh, because of that, the music came first, the lyrics came second, but it's just a tribute to, again, to Louisiana. We know we keep talking about that, um, but it's it's just a tribute to specifically the ladies of Louisiana and just their 
allocution, their their vibe, you know, how they how they roll, you know, and it just always strikes me every time I meet a lady from down there. She just they're just really cool people, you know. Not that the dudes aren't either, but but I, I don't know. It just uh, they just have a really cool rhythm about them, and so um, that's kind of what this song is about. Well, I tell you what, you've done a great sales job here, so let's go check it out. This is Louisiana Girl.
is an old saxophone player from the days of way back. I'm feeling that one. Yeah, that's Craig Dreyer doing Ooh. that on sax, man. He's, he's incredible. We're very, uh, again, blessed to get a guy like that to play on the record. He was wailing. I tell you what, everybody on there is top notch. Yeah, and we go, I know we already kind of talked about this, but, man, the time in the studio was just, everybody was so on. And like Jeff said, and actually Jim Mimna, the videographer, was kind of mad because he went ahead and filmed everybody else and didn't film me because he thought he was going to be able to come back and they were going to do my stuff later. But we, we, we hit everything on the first first track or the second take of every track. and You scratch track vocals. So, yeah, yeah he, didn't, he didn't have to. I didn't have to go back in the studio and redo any of my stuff. So he got no footage of me, which is fine because I'm, I'm an ugly beast. I'm a little mongrel. That's a sign of a great album. <laughs> it's, t- it's tough being that good, isn't it? Awesome. <laughs> I think we got lucky and blessed by the people around us and no, just the end no. dock side and the whole environment. So. Well, what's next on the to-do list for Johnny and the Mongrels? Well, I mean, we want to just try in these crazy times to keep creating and uh, building the buzz uh, and building our brand and sharing our music with more and more people and try to build our fan base and share what it is that we love and hopefully find more people who love the same thing and and just keep treading water and you know try to make some waves at the same time you know i know that yeah. sounds pretty cliche but um it's it's a it's a new world and we want to just keep and in these times i think the key is to keep creating content and stay mm-hmm. creative when it's, it seems like there's no reason to for some people you know if they get depressed and bummed and i have a lot of artist friends who are just really down the dumps and aren't having a lot of creative juices flowing. And I, I keep trying to help them say, Hey, we'll look at it another way and think of, think of how we can change things. And so right about that. And so that's what we're trying to do too, is, you know, always right now we, we want to keep working and moving forward and always, always be staying positive and creating new things for people to listen to and, and experience. Well, that's like part of our job too. Like as a musician, I feel like part of our job is to make other people feel better when they're down. Like, yeah. Give them something to hold on to that makes them dance in their underwear in the kitchen or whatever. You know, sorry. <laughs> well, a little far back true. there. <laughs> in the worst of times, music is what gets people to it. Absolutely. So I know this is kind of a loaded question because we, we don't know what, what the future is going to look like with, with all this stuff. But if you take covid out of the equation what what are or were the long-term hopes for this band and kind of how, how far down the road are, are you thinking i mean we i don't want to see the end of the road yeah, you know? the day I die, baby. yeah i mean <laughs> one of the gentlemen on our team mr tc davis he's been in the business for 50 years as long as me yeah he's an incredible you. dude and and one of the first things he ever asked me was johnny now this isn't the only record you want to do, right? And, you know, it seems like an obvious question to say, well, no, but, you know, he really made me think about it. Like, yeah, you're right. Like, this is what I do. This is what I want to always do. And so I'm going to fight tooth and nail to keep doing that. And, and so the future is bright and long and full of experiences and joy and happiness for Johnny the Mongrels. And, Whoever wants to be part of it, 
we want you to be on that train, on that swamp funk train with us. Michael Nation, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would be lying if I said there was no, not a tear or two that were shed over the fact that we were actually got to be blessed enough to be on the Jazz Fest ballot this year. And obviously that didn't happen and some other things. And we were looking forward to being on the road at this point. But we'll take it and we'll run with what we got and we'll keep on trucking and playing always. So have you guys talked about it? Do you have any kind of bucket list projects or anything that, that you really want to do within the scope of Johnny and the Mongrels? Huh. Well, for me, the first time I ever saw Colorado, I promised my or my personal lifetime goal was I'm going to play Red Rocks with my passion project. So that's one. But uh, yeah, lots of goals, I guess. Johnny, I'll touch yeah, and, and, and you know, Jeff touched on it. Jazz Fest is, has yeah. always been on my on my bucket list, and and you know, playing <laughs> some venues around and in and about there, which we had kind of tentatively set and, and it kind of fell apart which is okay yeah yeah i've done everything oh, i was just gonna say bobby's bucket's full don't ask no, it now the, the only thing i didn't do is the one place i wanted to play when i started playing which was madison square garden oh, wow. i've done every other place every other arena in the country and i haven't gone to japan so i love you but that's okay <laughs> i did my first interview when they weren't born yet <laughs> I'll tell you, I touched on this again, though. I have hit a couple things on my bucket list already, and, I mean, they might seem small, but anytime anyone comes up to me and tells me that something I wrote oh, made man. them feel better or changed their life in a positive way, that's, that's everything to me. That is that's everything for my bucket list yeah. in a cliff note right there. Well, before we get out of here today, let's hear one more from Johnny and the Mongrels. This is True Life on Fast Line Fast Track.
Excellent. Excellent stuff. Well, I hope that'll open up the door to some folks going out and getting that new album. That'd be great. Checking that out. If folks want to get it, where can they get it at? Well, every every major outlet, every major digital outlet, um, you know, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, we're on there. You can go to our website, johnnyandthemongrels.com slash store. We got it there. So really anywhere you can think about buying music, that's where you can find Johnny and the Mongols Creole Skies. And if you like that logo on the website, there's also t-shirts and you can buy the rec- like an actual record or yeah, all kinds of stuff. So join Mongols Nation, y'all. Another thing I want to plug is the socials. Are you guys big social media guys? Do you get into it much? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We're, you know, everywhere you're supposed to be uh, socially, you know, Johnny and the Mongols on Facebook. So facebook.com slash Johnny and the Mongols, Instagram dot com slash join the mongrels follow follow yeah <laughs> I always do that at shows uh, yeah we're all and all those those places you, you you know you're supposed to be I guess we also have a distribution uh, contract with a, a company here in Colorado called Color Color Red Music um, and so they're taking care of a lot of stuff with us and distributing our stuff worldwide which is really cool we. Uh, they got us on a radio station in Japan, and I uh, got to hear that radio show the other day. It was really cool. Johnny song. Yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> How fun is that, though? And I know we talk about this a lot with the country music artists that come on here. Uh, there is such an international hunger for, for music coming out of the States here. And, uh, uh, man, you can uh, gain a lot of traction pretty quickly uh, if you can uh, get the right people in your corner back there. Yeah, we're, we're really, really blessed and fortunate in that aspect. And, it's been neat to see, you know, we get emails, hey, you guys are in Taiwan now and in Japan and Amazon Japan and uh, Brazil and, you know, and those people really eat up American music and and uh, we're really uh, fortunate to be able to get to share our, 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 you know, our art with those people. And maybe down the road it'll end up causing a, a, a domino effect where we can maybe go to Europe or Asia or South America and and uh, get to play some shows. I, I, I would love to do that. I mean, I got the opportunity to tour UK with my sister, and one of the things I noticed is, like, when you start playing there, it oh, is God. silent. It oh, doesn't God. matter if it's a bar or anything, because every single person in the room is listening and caring about what you're doing. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. I hope that uh, sometime down the road uh, I can catch you guys uh, at a show somewhere, hopefully Jazz Fest, man. I, that would be a blast. Oh my gosh, oh, you have no idea, man. I would love to be was, in New Orleans and shaking your hand and hanging it out. It was on our schedules. Dream yeah. come true. Maybe we could have a, you know, we could have a Kashawn delay together. <laughs> yes, that, that gives us all a little something to shoot for. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the time, man. We want to say a special thank you to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. And I hope that when you're in the Nashville area, you'll go and check them out. They have a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, I know they'll find it for you. They have some new hours, so pay close attention. They'll be open Sunday to Thursday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. So when they're open, stop by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Fast Line Fast Track. also want to say a special shout-out 
out to our friends at Farm Life and thank them for their support of Fast Line Fast Track. Please go over and give them a like on Facebook so you can connect with others interested in agriculture. And join me over on their page every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern as I join Brandon Deal to talk about the things that are on the minds of farmers. And speaking of things that are on farmers' minds, harvest season is here. And if you have any last-minute needs for combines, heads, grain carts, grain dryers, trailers, or anything else, head on over to FastLine.com and check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. That's FastLine.com. And while you're on the website, please be sure to sign up for the print catalog for your state or region. No need to head into town to pick one up off the convenience store rack. The FastLine catalog is being delivered directly to your mailbox, and it's still a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across our great country. And remember to subscribe to the FastLine Fast Track podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for all the music of past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. And don't forget to hit us up on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Well, it's time for us to get on out of here, so until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com.